Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for these new lives that you've brought into our midst this morning as we have heard testimony to today. And we ask you, Lord, to just continue to glorify yourself in those little ones. And then in our lives as we minister to the new lives that you bring along. And Father, not only new lives in terms of physical uh, situation, but you are constantly bringing new lives into your kingdom as spiritual babies. And I pray that we who have known you for a while will be able to minister to those that come to know you and to be true reflectors of the glory of Christ into the dark world around us so that others might be drawn to the faith that we hold. Father, I ask you to bless us this morning and guide us as we study further from the book of 1 Samuel. Grant insight and understanding according to your divine plan, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14, I'd like to begin reading with verse 16. Now Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away. And they went here and there. And Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Then Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. And it happened while Saul talked to the priests that the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around in the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond beth Avon. Well, you can tell just from that reading of the passage of Scripture that it is slightly enigmatic. But the essence of the account is this. It boils down to the fact God routed the Philistines. And so that's really the essence of what this passage is saying. He did so as a result of a promise that he had made centuries before to Moses. I'd like to turn to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 7 and read what God had said concerning the Israelites as they came into the land. Because this is a, a fulfillment of that in some measure. Deuteronomy 7, beginning at verse 17. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to Egypt, the great trials which your eyes saw, and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them until those who are left and hide themselves who are left and hide themselves from you perish. You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. And the Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little, and you will, you will not be able to put an end to them quickly, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God shall deliver them before you and will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. Now, as you look at that particular passage, 
You see that, that fulfilled in this passage that we're reading here this morning. Jonathan and his armor bearer in faith took on the Philistine outpost. It was not because Jonathan thought that he was a mighty warrior and that the two could take on the 20 or whatever was the number there, but it was an act of faith. And God responded by enabling Jonathan and his armor bearer to destroy, to wipe out a whole platoon of Philistines. And then what did God do? God did something beyond just enabling Jonathan because the scripture tells us that he sent an earthquake. The ground under the Philistines quaked. He sent confusion and he sent panic into the remaining Philistine forces from a high point in Gibeah. One of Saul's sentinels was looking out towards Michmash. Of course, didn't have uh, binoculars in those days, so you had to have somebody with 20-20 vision looking out there and uh, trying to detect what was going on in the distance. And he could see that the Philistines were in chaos. They were fleeing in all directions. Of course, he could not see the cause of this. It's just that he saw all this movement and it seemed to be random and chaotic. And when he reported this to Saul, Saul said, oh, somebody must have snuck off and is over there uh, causing an attack. Let's get everybody together, muster the troops, and I want a roll call. I want to find out who's missing from our midst. When he found that everyone was present except Jonathan, we discover that he called for the ark to be brought. Now, what is the relationship with, oh, everybody's here except Jonathan and his armor bearer. Please bring the ark. Now, the scripture says that the ark was in those days with the sons of Israel. It, it's not saying that the ark was in Israel. It's saying that the ark was at Gibeah, which is not where it had been. Remember, when it came back from Philistia, it was at Kirith-Jerim, and that's where it would be housed for quite a while. So apparently Saul had ordered that it be brought up to Gibeah at this particular hour, at this particular time, so it would be with him and the troops there. And the question is, why? Why did Saul call for the ark to be brought to Gibeah? And I think the reason is that he saw in it a kind of a talisman. He saw in it a good luck charm, something that would bring protection to his army and good fortune to him. I, I just ha have not come to the place of believing that Saul had right motives in much of anything that he did. It seems that Ahijah began some sort of ritual here. It's not explained to us. I think the ritual could have involved the casting of the Urim and the Thummim because Saul wanted to know whether he should go out and join in the, the, this confusion, whether he should go and attack the fleeing Philistines or not. So it was probably a kind of a lot being cast to determine the, quote, will of God in this matter. But what we discover in this passage is something of the character of Saul because as the word keeps coming back, the, the, the Philistines are in greater confusion. They're fleeing in every direction. There seems to be just no order to them at all. Saul finally says to the priest, cut it off, stop, withdraw your hand, he says, uh, forget it, I'm going to go out and attack the Philistines. Now is that a statement by Saul that uh, he didn't need some kind of good luck thing happening because he felt like he had enough good luck, or was it he simply was deciding he didn't need to know what the Urimim threw him and were going to come up, I'm just going to attack him because they're obviously fleeing. Was he just making a decision on his own to attack? Was this wise, was this unwise? Well, I don't think we can know directly from the text. I can tell you that from the results, it was a wise move. 
because the enemy will be totally routed and uh, defeated, although not as completely as they could have been had he been, not been foolish in other areas. I think that Saul is a bit of an example of what it's like to live in a country where you cannot totally trust your leadership. And when you're in a situation where you can't totally trust your leadership, it makes you have a sense of uneasiness. Because if you don't know that your leader's going to do the right thing, you never know but what your country is going to be plunged into some kind of a situation that's not going to be pleasant. And that was, of course, the case here for many of the Israelites as they served under Saul. Now, terror had gotten into the hearts of the Philistines. It was God who put that terror in the hearts of the Philistines. And the evidence of this is seen in verse 20 where we read that as Saul and all the people were with him rallied and came to the battle, it says, Behold, every man, this is talking about the Philistines now, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Who was the author of that confusion? In this instance, God was the author of that confusion. As he was at Babel, he was the author of confusion. The normal author of confusion, of course, is Satan. He's the one that confuses God's people. But God is the one who confuses the evil one and his followers. And so every man's sword was turned against his fellow, and there was great confusion in the Philistine camp. These who were blind followers of the evil one were tossed into confusion by the Almighty. This was almost identical to what had happened a few decades back, a few generations back, actually, when God gave Gideon a similar overwhelming victory. Let me read just a few words to you from Judges chapter 7. And, and these are the words. And when they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another throughout the whole army. There were only 300 Israelites that were serving Gideon. 300, that was, um, you know, as we already talked about when we dealt, that was bad <laughs> odds because the Midianites and the Amalekites numbered in the tens of thousands. But it didn't take 300 men to kill the enemy. They killed each other. They turned on each other. They destroyed themselves. And that is what's happening here in the Philistine camp. They're turning one against the other in their fear, their irrational fear that is causing them to flee. It became rather obvious to Saul and to the others with him that the Philistines were being turned into a wholesale rout. I mean, they were just fleeing pell-mell down the hill with no sense of order to their military formation at all. And so Saul's army began to pursue them. Now remember, Saul only had a very small army up there at Gibeah, 600 men. The Philistine army was certainly in the thousands and possibly in the tens of thousands of men. But we discover he picks up some allies along the way. And it's a bit enigmatic there, but I think what it's saying is here that there were some Israelites who had cozied up to the Philistines because they didn't want to be killed and they didn't want their homes destroyed by the raiders. Remember, they're out of this Philistine uh, encampment. Raids were being launched into different directions. And so some Israelites had come up to the Philistines and, and, and sort of bought them off and were actually associating with them and were in the camp. And it says that when they saw the attack that they joined then with their fellow Israelites in pursuing the Philistines. And then we're also told that others were coming out of pits and caves and holes in the ground. Where were the, who were these people? Well, they were the ones that had been part of Saul's original call-up 
But when they saw the magnitude of the Philistine force, they had kind of said, you know, and they run off and hid in a cave somewhere. And now they're emboldened to come out of the cave because the Philistines are being routed. So suddenly Saul's army does grow by probably hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands, as people come in. This reminds me of, uh, of a historical event which occurred in 1861 when Italy was in a situation of trying to finally gel as a nation. And in the northern part of Italy, there was a country called Piedmont. And the country of Piedmont is, the, is sort of the core around which the modern kingdom of Italy would be formed. And after a battle, a war that had been fought, uh, certain members of the army of, of this country of Piedmont were disaffected because Piedmont only gained a little bit of land as a result of the war. So one of these guys, his name was Giuseppe Garibaldi, decided, I'm going to do it myself. So he raised the standard and called for men in the army who wanted to join him, and he created what is called the Thousand Red Shirts. And they went down to the southern part of Italy, and they started attacking the, the enemies of the Italians. And, of course, there were only a 1,000 of them. But after their first victory, uh, other Italians said, hey, they won. So some joined, and the next victory, more joined. And after the next victory, more joined, and pursued at an army of 5,000, you know. So what was it? Uh, when you're successful, a lot of people become your friends and allies, you know. <laughs> and uh, so it was here. Saul is seeing success. The Philistines are fleeing, and all these cowards are now coming out of their hiding places and are joining forces. And those that had actually been fraternizing with the enemy are also joining Saul's forces. Um, actually, the Philistines are a different ethnic group than uh, the Hebrews. They are of the uh, Japhethites and not of the Shemites. Uh, the Philistines uh, were related to the peoples up in Asia Minor who were, you know, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, of course, uh, descended from Japheth and not from Shem. And so there probably were some physical characteristics that uh, made the Philistines stand out a little bit, but their dress was different. They, I, I think their army was, was more of an actual uh, recruited army, trained army, uh, dressed like soldier army, whereas the Israelites were a bit more ragtag and like a bunch of gorillas. You know, G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A-S. <laughs> so I, I think in that sense, and, and the people who were just flying, ah! they were the enemy. <laughs> And the guys chasing after them with sword. They were the friends. <laughs> well, you know, what, what you're pointing out is a, is a good point, though, because in the midst of chaotic hand battle, you could imagine that there probably were times when friends killed friends simply by accident or by not... I mean, we have friendly fire deaths today. You could imagine in those days what it would be like. So, yeah, it was something to take note of. Did they have the same weapons? Well, yeah. In general, they had the same weapons, but as we've already noted, the big issue was that the Philistines had a monopoly on iron, and therefore they would have been all equipped with iron swords, iron spears, iron-headed arrows, whereas the Israelites would have been more equipped with bronze, which was what they had been operating with for centuries. But as I pointed out before, certainly as the enemy fled and dropped their weapons, while the Israelites could pick up now iron weapons, and have them to pursue the enemy with. So uh, the Israelites were not as well equipped, but the point I'm trying to make here is that the fear of the Philistines was unfounded in reality. As the Philistines fled down the hillside, now if you, if you can visualize this again, the Michmash is up in the hill country 
of, of Judea, Ephraim, up in that area, up in there. And you're up at 2,000, two um, maybe 2,500 feet. And Philistia is down on the plain next to the Mediterranean Sea. So as they fled home, they were running downhill. You know, so this, this, this army is fleeing probably over a fairly large area, downhill towards the coast. And the Israelites were pursuing them with great zest. The enemy's running, the people we've been afraid of, they're running. Suddenly the Israelites are very brave as they chase after the enemy. Verse 23 makes it very clear who's responsible for this victory. It is not Saul. It is not Israel. It says the Lord delivered Israel that day. And, you know, this is the truth that needs to ring out of passage after passage of the Old Testament. It is the Lord who delivers. No matter how great the army, no matter how brilliant the king, no matter how wise the leader, it's the, it is God who delivers. It is God who delivers. Because we all have feet of clay, we all fail. And, of course, looking at the life of Saul, we find that not only were his feet clay, everything else was clay, too. And... He, he was a man who was not after God's own heart as David would be subsequently. Yes, the Israelites participated in the destruction, but theirs was just mop-up, clean-up. It was God who had actually won the victory. God had sent the hornet, going back to the Deuteronomy 7 passage. God had sent the hornet. The hornet was not a little bug. The hornet was unwarranted terror. God had instilled panic in the heart of the Philistines, panic that had, had no foundation in reality. There was just two guys, Jonathan and his little, well, he may not have been little, but Jonathan and his armor bearer, just two guys. Why are you all running from two guys? Well, because God had put into the hearts of the Philistines a totally irrational fear. Scripture says that the Philistines were chased pell-mell all the way past beth Aven. We do not know where beth Aven was, but we know that it was probably on the Philistine-Israelite border. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't have mentioned it there. So let's read on and see what this great wise king of Israel does. <laughs> now, the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day. Israel was hard-pressed? Now, it was the Philistines that were running. Well, notice what it says. For Saul had put the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. And all the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey. But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under the oath. Therefore he put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people answered and said, Your father strictly put the people under an oath saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little honey. How much more if only the people <clears throat> had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they had found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. Is this an example of how to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory? This passage gives us some details concerning the pursuit, the Israelite pursuit of the Philistines. Again, we see 
repeated the folly of Saul. Rather than seeking the mind of the Lord, do we find him going before the Lord and saying, oh God, what shall I do here in this situation? You're giving us this victory. What should we do? D does he go, you know, is Samuel with him? Well, we don't know. Samuel's probably not far away. He, he doesn't consult Samuel. He doesn't consult the word. He doesn't consult a priest. He just decides on his own how he's going to invoke God's blessing on this day. His goal, of course, was to keep his men single-minded. He wanted them to pursue the enemy. And so he swore an oath before the Lord. Now, this isn't just an order he sent out saying, okay, guys, be sure you don't eat anything until we've vanquished the enemy. This is an oath. He's taken it before God. It's a curse he's put out on the whole nation, or at least on the army. The commentator Ronald Youngblood says that the oath was intended to implement a religiously motivated fast that would energize the men and fill them with fighting zeal. That, he feels, is what Saul was thinking in his head. So it's the idea that the Israelites now were not just pursuing an enemy of the nation. We are on a jihad. This is a holy war. This is a crusade against Philistia. They would fight harder, Saul thought, if they viewed it as a crusade rather than just as another battle. And that they would enable Saul to take vengeance on the Philistines because this is what he wanted above all, to have vengeance on these people. Certainly, it was also intended, of course, to keep the men on the job. If they're chasing the enemy and they, walk, they run by a, a whole pile of food, they're going to say, well, I'm hungry, <laughs> and stop and, and have a meal while the enemy is fleeing down the hill. And so Saul didn't want that to happen. The curse invoked by Saul was taken very seriously by the troops. And even though they were famished, the Scripture says they obeyed Saul's orders and they did not eat, even as they were running by readily available fast food. <laughs> they were passing through the forest of Ephraim. The, if, the hills of Ephraim in those days were forested. They are not today. <laughs> there are not many forests at all in Israel today. They're trying to reforest. But uh, it was forest in those days. And uh, as they were running through the forest, there were honeycombs, or honey beehives at least, in there. And one of them apparently had been damaged. And so the comb was dripping and honey was dripping onto the ground. And it was obvious to some of the troops who were running through. But none touched it except Jonathan, the one who should have been heir apparent to the throne of Israel. He saw it. And the scripture tells us that he reached out his staff. Now, I think what that means is he reaches out this butt end of his spear because he's a soldier in battle. He's probably not just carrying a staff around. He's carrying a spear and a sword and, and, and he dips his spear in into the honey and brings it up and wipes it off and sticks it in his mouth and his eyes light up, you know. Good honey. <laughs> Royal jelly or whatever it is they call it comes there. Sometimes we need that. Of course, the, the, the statement that his eyes brightened was a euphemism for the re rejuvenation of his strength and energy. He felt revitalized because there was some sugar flowing into his veins or into his body. I don't know, you don't want sugar in your veins maybe, but in, in, your, in his body. And Jonathan, of course, had not heard of his father's oath. He had not heard his father's curse. Why not? Because he's the one who instigated this whole thing. He was the guy originally chasing the Philistines and, and Saul comes later with his troops and they had probably not even seen each other through that part of the day yet at all. So Jonathan didn't know the order that had been sent out. 
And so when he had taken from the honey, one of the soldiers said, Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, your father said, we're not to do that. He put a curse on us if we were to take any of the food. And notice that that verse also says at the end of the verse that all the men were weary. Huh. The soldier reminded Israel, or remind Jonathan, or told Jonathan, you weren't supposed to be doing this, but the comment at the end of the verse is, but all the men were weary. Jonathan's response was not, uh-oh, I'm in trouble now, or, oh, no, I broke my father's command. Notice Jonathan's response. He says, my father has troubled the land. The Hebrew word that's translated troubled there refers to harm generated by someone's actions. And the full impact of what Jonathan was saying in his use of that specific word is made clear when we read the two other places where that form of the verb is used. Let me go back to, uh, just to turn briefly to Joshua chapter 7 and verse 25, where we read this, Joshua said, he's talking now to Achan, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones and, they, and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Achan was viewed as a troubler of Israel, and God in turn turned trouble to him. And then in 1 Kings chapter 18, we read the same verb being used here by Ahab and then in turn by Elijah. 1 Kings 18 verse 16, So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And it came about when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he, that is Elijah, said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed after the Baals. So we're talking about a very, very serious form of this verb here. It was not a good word that Jonathan was using. He was speaking in a way that could have been interpreted as both disrespectful and insubordinate since this was his father and also his commander-in-chief. But Jonathan expanded on what he meant with a statement that you read in verse 30 where he says, How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoils of their enemies which they had found, for now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. Jonathan was noting that the Philistines were not being slaughtered as much as they should be because his men were too tired to chase them effectively. So the statement is this. Saul's intent caused the reverse to happen. Saul's intended actions caused not his people to be more effective, but less effective in destroying the enemy. It did not increase the slaughter of the Philistines, but decreased it because his men were weary from lack of food and were not able to pursue the Philistines as hotly as possible. You might say, well, but the Philistines probably hadn't eaten either. But you have to remember, the Philistines are scared spitless, and they are running like the banshee is after them, and you don't have to be uh, full of good food to do that. You, you know, fear will cause you to do things that uh, you would not be able to otherwise do. Jonathan felt that if his men had been allowed to stop and partake of some of the food along the way, they would have been re-energized and thus much more effective in pursuing 
the Philistines. And what he was saying at the end of the verse is, because the slaughter has not been as great as it should have been, the Philistines are surviving and they are going to be trouble again someday. That is what he's implying by what he's saying there. And that, of course, will turn to be very true. Concerning this very account, Matthew Henry, the commentator, says, Saul's making this severe order was unwise, for if it gained time, it lost strength for the pursuit. It was impious to enforce the prohibition with a curse and an oath. In other words, this was not of God for him to use a curse and an oath to, to, to pass this order onto his people, which wasn't even an order that he had received from God. Had he no penalty worse than an anathema wherewith to support his military discipline? In other words, was, was Saul so poor of a commander that he couldn't just send an order that would be obeyed without enforcing it with a curse from God Almighty? Well, if you listen to standard military jargon, you'd probably say, well, probably not, <laughs> because it seems like cursing is part of normal giving of orders. This whole episode further demonstrates Saul's foolishness and his lack of understanding of who God really is. That, that really, I think, is a key. How do we successfully live the Christian life? We successfully live the Christian life by knowing the one whom we serve. The better we know him, the more successful we are in serving him. And how can we know him better? It's obvious, only by studying what he has said about himself and how he has functioned down through history. Saul had learned nothing from what had happened at Gilgal, where he had gone and made a sacrifice before the appointed time, and Samuel came to him and said, you would have confirmed your, your family on the kingdom had you been obedient, but because you've been disobedient, you've lost the kingdom to your family, and another man is going to be chosen by God. Did Saul learn anything? Was Jonathan's words a little bit energized by the fact that he would never wear the crown because of the foolishness of his father? Well, possibly. I think out of this, we should remember that God will be worshipped and obeyed on his terms, not on our terms. And that, I think, is extremely important. Janet? I was looking at verse 24, and I was wondering if the men might have been more energized if the motivation had been God's Yes, good point. Very good point. I, I think that at least amongst the men of Israel who really were still trusting in God, that would have been very much true. Yeah. Especially since up to this point, Saul had not demonstrated himself to be all that great a king or commander. Yeah. I, I think one of the issues that has resulted in the multiplication of, uh, quote, denominations or sects or varieties of Christianity rests at least in part upon an insistence on how we will worship God. Hmm. We've, we've made up our minds how we are going to worship God rather than discovering how God wants to be worshipped. It is God who tells us how to worship Him. And I think that's what we need to follow in, and that's what we need to obey. And Saul's foolish choice as to how it was going to be resulted in loss where there should have been overwhelming victory. Not that he lost uh, soldiers, but he lost what he would have gained had he been obedient and done God's will. Well, let me read the next passage. We won't have time to uh, develop it today, but let me read the next few verses. 
And they struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aelon, and the people were very weary. See, that shows up again. And the people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter it here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar he built to the Lord. Saul had been king for at least two years. This is the very first altar he built to the Lord. Well, next week we'll, we'll look at the meaning of this because there is significance in what is happening here as described in this passage.